Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. I'm President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 8th. Today, the strategy behind Trump's shutdown tactics, a dramatic spike in U.S. carbon emissions, and how China could be spying with subway cars. If you put together all of the pieces of this puzzle, it's quite evident that this is an administration moving towards possibly declaring a national emergency in order to start building a border wall. Robert Costa is a national political reporter here at The Post, and he's been covering President Trump's attempts to end the partial government shutdown while still building his border wall. If we can do it through a negotiated process, we're giving that a shot. So is that uh, a threat hanging over the Democrats? I never threaten anybody, but, but I am allowed to do that, yes. Called a national emergency. Over the weekend, Vice President Pence led negotiations at the White House with congressional aides, Democrats and Republicans, But those talks collapsed. Democrats say that the talks collapsed because the White House wasn't actually interested in ending the shutdown. Instead, the focus of those weekend talks was in trying to make the case that there's a crisis at the border. And this idea that there's a crisis at the border was continued on Monday by Vice President Pence when he met with reporters. How did they know that Pence wasn't interested in actually bringing the shutdown to an end? They knew the administration would have to back off of the $5.7 billion the president has requested for a border wall. And with the administration unwilling to move off that number, congressional Democratic sources told me they thought the administration was then digging in was getting prepared to maybe make the case to the country, as the president will do Tuesday night, that there is a crisis at the border. And if Congress doesn't act, the administration will take dramatic executive action. And this is something that Kirsten Nielsen has been talking about as well, right? That she's been making the case that there is a crisis on the border that needs to be dealt with in this manner. And it's a debated case. Many immigration experts say border apprehensions have actually fallen over the past decade. There is a migrant surge at the border because of people coming up from Central America seeking asylum. But the administration has had two years to try to pursue a border wall when Republicans controlled Congress. And it's only now at the dawn of divided government, at this crisis moment of a shutdown politically, are they really seemingly ready to go to the brink to try to secure this funding. What do we know about President Trump's thinking as he's kind of arrived at this decision to go with the national emergency approach? We know he's listening to people on the American right. His confidants are not only people in Congress like Mark Meadows, the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, a member of the House of North Carolina, but you also have People like Sean Hannity, the Fox News host, who said on his radio program this week he believes the president will declare a national emergency. And the Post has called Hannity an informal chief of staff for President Trump. You see the pressure mounting on President Trump from his core voters, his allies, who believe the wall is his signature campaign promise and he has to get it done. And that's why some of my top sources inside of the White House say the president is, in effect, boxed in. They're not ready to say he's going to declare a national emergency, but they have to have it as an option, they argue, because 
if Congress doesn't play ball, they feel the president must in some way check the box off that signature campaign promise. This wall will pay for itself many times during the course of a year. The money we're talking about is very small compared to the return. How are Democrats responding to this attempt by the president to basically circumvent them? Democrats believe they have an upper hand. They don't think the administration has a way out of the shutdown, and they believe public pressure will mount for the government to reopen. At the same time, Democrats are closely watching congressional Republicans, and they saw a few votes in the in the House vote to reopen the government last week peel off. You saw some senators like Susan Collins and Cory Gardner, more centrist Republicans, at least in how they approach shutdowns, saying that, that it's time to reopen the government. Then Tom Tillis, a Republican senator from North Carolina, said it's time to reopen the government. And Democrats believe it's not so much right now what they have to do. It's how do Republicans handle the tension? Will Republicans crack even more? And if the Republican Party cracks apart on the shutdown and they're not willing to endure a national emergency or a prolonged shutdown, Democrats feel like Republicans will eventually come to the table. And what would that look like? I mean, are Democrats forecasting that there could be a world in which they would get a veto-proof majority to reopen the government without giving Trump any border wall funding? At this point, Democrats hope that the Republicans break and they just choose to reopen the government and then have further discussions about immigration. Republicans have put humanitarian, hundreds of millions of dollars for humanitarian needs at the border on the table. And Democrats are interested in that and actually having a negotiation about that. Democrats are also interested in seeing, could they make a deal for DACA to protect DREAMers, undocumented children in exchange for new protections from deportation, maybe giving the Republicans something that's not exactly a wall a steel wall that the president wants or a concrete wall, but it'd be something similar, fencing. But the Democrats say you can't have those talks until the government's reopened. And at this point, both sides have walked away from the negotiating table. Well, and for for Democrats, they've basically said that they are refusing to vote on anything until the government is reopened. That's right. That's the Democratic position. It hasn't changed in the last few days. At this time, you have both sides digging in. President Trump rallying his base, speaking to the country. Democrats newly empowered on Capitol Hill saying that this is a moment that matters not only for immigration policy, but it matters for the rest of the year. So it seems like President Trump is trying to make this case that he's like willing to go to the mat to build this border wall. But even if he takes this kind of nuclear option of declaring a national emergency, the chances that it's going to get built in the next two years are still pretty low, right? Because it's going to get challenged in court, because the realities of building a wall all along the border, as we know, are very complicated. Do you feel like his goal here is to actually get it built or to demonstrate that he did everything that was within his power to try to get it built? The answer is probably both things. He does want to get it built. It's not. This is not a game for President Trump. I mean, he knows the wall is the beating heart of his political career. At the same time, he knows he needs to show his own voters that he did go to the edge, uh, whether that's declaring a national emergency or not. But you're spot on with the reality of the situation, which is even if he does declare a national emergency and you have the Army Corps of Engineers go down to the Texas border and start digging holes to build a wall, that'll be such a drastic move that it will cause ruptures within the Republican Party 
legal challenges in federal court, investigations on Capitol Hill. It's by no means something that would just happen. And there would be debate within the Pentagon about whether this is the proper use of funds, even if directed by the president of the United States, because usually these kind of powers, this kind of executive authority is used during wartime, not to complete a president's domestic agenda. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you. It's pretty clear that U.S. greenhouse gas emissions went up in 2018 at a time when the world is saying that we need to make a sharp turn and everybody's emissions need to go down and need to go down fast. So it really raises in a big way the question of what the U.S.'s role is going to be or is not going to be in contributing to that. Scientists have warned that the impacts of climate change will be devastating and likely irreversible if global temperatures rise by just 1.5 degrees Celsius. We are already up one degree. And to keep that temperature from rising more, the world has just a decade to dramatically reduce carbon emissions. But climate reporter Chris Mooney says that that reduction did not happen this year, not by a long shot. Well, we're looking here at the emissions of only carbon dioxide. It's the main greenhouse gas. And it's coming from a variety of sectors of the economy that we all participate in in various ways. The generating of electricity, the driving of vehicles or flying of planes, the production of goods in factories and industrial facilities, and the living in buildings or working in buildings that need all kinds of power, air conditioning, and all kinds of other things that also draw electricity. And so the conclusion was that all of those things in 2018... All of those things in 2018 led the United States emissions to go up, which flies in the face of the trend, which is that they've been going slowly downward, which was good news. It's not a sharp decrease, but we were down, you know, in the order of 10 to 15 percent from the high. But now we're looking like we're going back up a little bit. And it seems but by how much? 3.4 percent is the latest estimate. And there have been other estimates of 3 percent and 2.5. We're going to get a final number, but it's going to be something like one of these numbers. And what that means is that it's going to be very hard for the United States to do what President Obama promised the world, which is get the emissions down 26 percent or more by 2025. That's looking very hard. The rate of decrease you'd have to have now is really fast, and it's not something the U.S. has shown that it's able to do. Why are we seeing this uptick after there were a few years of at least like modest decreases in, in greenhouse well, gas Well, we're seeing... You know, it's been a big year for the economy, a lot of economic growth. And when you do that, you produce goods. People feel like they have money. They travel. They change their lives. And greenhouse gas emissions grow. So a large part of it's tied to the economy. The question is whether on top of that, some sectors of the country are responding to signals from President Trump. He said he's going to roll back all of these Obama-era regulations on power plants, on vehicle fuel economy standards, and particularly with power plants. Some think that that is slow to turn toward renewable energy, and that might also be contributing a bit. I don't think anyone thinks that this is a Trump effect in a dominant way. They think it's more economic growth. But that itself proves that if greenhouse gas emissions are still tied to the economy, it means that we haven't done enough to take carbon 
out of the economy, which is ultimately what you have to do if you're going to change these trends, because nobody wants the world to stop having good economies. Well, so couldn't you say that like this is the time when we should be investing more in alternative energy sources because the economy is so good, because there's money to invest in different ways of doing things? I think many people would argue that. And it's important to note that those investments are ongoing. I think a lot of folks would argue that they're not at the scale that you would need in order to really attack the climate change problem with the speed that needs it. So renewable energy is growing fast. So are electric vehicles. But they're growing from this really small percentage of the overall number of vehicles or overall number of sources of generating power. And so they can grow fast, but they're still, you know, going from, let's say, 1% to 2%. That's still a doubling, but you still got 98% something else. So that's the kind of the situation that we're in. I just find that so ironic because it seems like folks have been waiting for a time where the economy has been better to say, okay, this is a time where we can start changing things, where we can start investing and more sustainable future. But this is also the time when, in some ways, most perilous for greenhouse gas emissions, when people start feeling like they can spend money on gas and on plane tickets, and that this is a time when you're going to expect this kind of stepping away from the advancements that have been made in the past few years? I think that the answer is, is that the economy gives and the economy takes away. And innovation can lead to a decrease of greenhouse gas emissions if it's innovation in the wind and solar sector. But at the same time, if people are just following economic motivations, they might do other things that cause them to increase. So what you need probably is something more overarching like policy. And that's what there hasn't been. Basically, we've just been going along. And going along has worked somewhat, but it doesn't appear to be working at the pace that matches the latest scientific analyses, which outline a very extreme conclusion, which is that the globe's emissions have to go down by half in just over 10 years. For the U.S., they're up above 5 billion metric tons a year, so they would have to be 2.5. I mean, it's just hard to conceive. So if we're not doing well right now, how is the rest of the world doing? China's emissions are up a great deal in 2018 based on the estimates, which again are not final. India's emissions are up. Everyone expects India to continue to grow. And is that because of the economy? Their economies are doing well in their... Right. China's economy is always a key role in driving the emissions. And the same thing with India. It's a growing country where a lot of people are getting electricity for the first time. That growth is expected. Europe is flat, but not declining at the pace that the world needs or that Europe itself wants to see. And then there's the rest of the world, which is everybody else, which adds up to more. And they're all going up a bit too. At this point, is there any possibility that the world will be able to get its act together enough to avoid that 1.5 degree increase? You would have to make radical changes of the sort that I don't think are really under serious consideration right now to cut the world's emissions in half in 10 years. I mean, that's just, it's an incredibly high hurdle. You could go past 1.5, but not quite reach two, and then, you know, start to at least cut the emissions or start to deploy some of the technologies. I think at each sort of increment, what happens is you risk more losses. Some things will be lost, some things will be saved. What will the Amazon look like at two degrees? That's another fundamental system of the planet that will be in jeopardy at some point. I think a lot about the giant glaciers of Greenland and Antarctica. They are capable of raising seas by tens of feet. It's very possible that 
at 1.5, we could set in motion a loss that will give us 10 feet of sea level rise. But at two, we could set in motion a loss that gives us 20. The further you go, you're always more likely to lose some things that you can't get back. What is happening next, either in terms of like new information that's going to be coming out or, you know, obviously we just had the Poland talks, but if there's like some other things that's happening in the near term future. All eyes on 2020, because 2020 is the year in which the United States can complete its formal withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement. And it's the year where you suddenly have only a decade left in order to cut the globe's emissions dramatically in which all countries maybe not the U.S., but all countries are going to be asked, and we'll see how many go along with it, to up their ambitions and say they will do more. And the Paris structure doesn't mandate what they do. It encourages and coaxes and cajoles and pressures them to say that they will do more. And so we're going to have to see what the whole world's agenda is adding up to in 2020. And then that decade, the 2020s, is going to be the decision decade. So that's, to me, that's, that's what's next. Before you go, we've got one more thing about the D.C. subway system and a problem that nobody saw coming. And I just thought at the beginning that it was a story about this one metro contract. Bob McCartney, senior regional correspondent for The Post. But when I started doing some research, I found out quite quickly that there was national concern, including in Congress and the Pentagon. That's because the D.C. metro is in the process of buying new custom-made subway cars. They're about to send out their specifications to all the potential manufacturers. And one of the companies that's under consideration to build these subway cars is owned and subsidized by the Chinese government. Somebody fairly high up at Metro called me confidentially and said that they were concerned about it, that they did not have adequate protections against cybersecurity espionage. China or Russia or somebody else might try to use infrastructure as a way of conducting spying. The theory is that if China is building our subway cars, they could secretly install technology that allows them to monitor the people riding. It sounds fanciful, I know. It sounds like something out of a movie, out of a Tom Cruise spy thriller. But the Responsible people, including the former head of cybersecurity policy in the White House, said that you can install, say, sensors that could overhear conversations that people were having on the metro. Which is a big deal in Washington because a lot of important people do use a subway to commute. Like, there's a subway station at the actual Pentagon. Yes, under the Pentagon and right next to the Capitol. And it wouldn't be impossible to embed microphones, like in the train speaker systems, to listen in. Or also use facial recognition software to track White House officials or Pentagon officials or CIA people as they rode the metro, as they rode the blue line or the orange line, and basically send this stuff secretly back to Beijing. And this is coming at a time when federal officials have real reasons to be concerned about hackers directed by foreign governments. Fresh accusations of espionage. 
U.S. prosecutors have indicted two Chinese nationals who they claim hacked into businesses worldwide and American government agencies, including NASA and the U.S. Navy. So, yeah, hacking into the subway system in the nation's capital is not that far-fetched. For now, Bob says that the D.C. Metro has come up with a solution. They're mandating that a U.S.-approved cybersecurity expert inspects all the trains for any funny business. Basically certified as safe by a third party. But in the long term, Bob says that Metro and other transit agencies around the country are increasingly worried about cybersecurity risks, including whether they could be inadvertently letting foreign countries spy on you. I don't think the Chinese want to spy on me. I think they'd probably be more interested in spying on some of the other people who ride the, ride the trains. That's it for Post Reports. Talk to us on Twitter about this episode by using the hashtag Post Reports. For our episode archives and links to the story on this show, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. And do us a solid and leave a nice review on your podcast app or recommend the show to a friend or family member. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.